You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Bellingcat gets a look in from the Bears. Magecart card skimming codes been found in bogus domains. The My Doom worm remains active in the wild 15 years after it first surfaced. Election security threats? The U.S. Coast Guard says the malware that hit a container ship off New York earlier this year was Emotet. Marcus Hutchins gets time served. Fresh concerns about digital assistance and privacy. And yes, you do owe taxes on those altcoins. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, July 29th, 2019. Bellingcat, the investigative group that's long followed the activities of Russian security and intelligence services, says its ProtonMail accounts were subjected to a hacking attempt by Russia's military intelligence service, the GRU. ProtonMail says it successfully blocked the attempts. An increased Russian op-tempo may be expected in cyberspace, especially given recent civil unrest in Moscow. Researchers at Sukori have found Magecart card-skimming script in faked Google domains. The skimmer supports theft on several payment gateways. Palo Alto Networks' Unit 42 reports that My Doom, the old worm that surfaced in 2004, is still out and actively used in phishing campaigns. Its persistence is due in part to its self-sufficiency and to its aggressive utility. Krebs on Security calls it the unsexy threat to election security. It's the prospect that election officials might have their social media or email accounts spoofed or hijacked to spread disinformation immediately before, during, and immediately after voting. A civil grand jury in San Mateo County, California, the western part of Silicon Valley, warned that hijacked or spoofed accounts could be used to suppress voting by distributing misinformation about polling, or could be used to excite conflict with false reports of results. Thus argues the report rendered by the California Superior Court for the County of San Mateo, securing the email and social media accounts of election officials shouldn't be overlooked. Secure voting machines by all means, but don't neglect the meta-electoral role that official electronic communications play. The U.S. Coast Guard last week released further details on a cyber attack that hit a merchant vessel inbound for the Port of New York and New Jersey. The Wall Street Journal says the malware involved was an Emotet variant. The deep draft container ship, U.S. flagged, reported a pervasive infestation of its internal network. The vessel itself was probably not the target, and the opportunistic infection, the Coast Guard said, was permitted by slipshod shipboard IT practices. Marcus Hutchins, the accidental hero of WannaCry and the deliberate villain of the Kronos banking trojan, has been sentenced to time served and a year of supervised release 
for charges related to developing and selling Kronos. The presiding judge cited Hutchins's youth and apparent reform when he passed sentence. Hutchins will return to the U.K. and will be unlikely to be permitted back into the U.S., at least not for some time. Hutchins himself tweeted thanks to the many who supported him and expressed his gratitude to the judge for leniency and understanding. Some are surprised by the light sentence, as Kronos was neither a prank nor a tool for victimless criminality. It was a banking trojan. Content moderation at YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter is largely done in a very labor-intensive fashion. Artificial intelligence remains, relatively speaking, in its infancy, and training AI inevitably requires extensive and detailed human curation. The pressure to moderate Internet traffic, often motivated by well-intentioned concerns about radicalization, criminal conspiracy, and abuse, will continue to drive more intense inspection of online content. Wired reports that Facebook alumnus Alex Stamos, now at the Stanford Cyber Policy Center, for example, is establishing the Stanford Internet Observatory, a SETI-like data collection and analysis platform, except that unlike SETI, it's not looking for alien life. Instead, it's designed to ferret out the dangerous or otherwise objectionable stuff that crosses the web. The observatory seeks access to the data all the major online platforms collect. Implementing a comprehensive threat intelligence program for your organization may seem daunting, with countless information feeds available and many third-party providers offering their own customized threat intelligence products. Tom Hagel is a security researcher with AT&T Alien Labs, and he offers these insights. Threat intelligence has really kind of evolved quite a lot over the last 10, 5, 10 years at least. Things have changed quickly, and in the private industry, information security industry, we've really kind of taken threat intelligence, the approach and methodology of that. A lot of it has come from the government side or the military side of you know the threat actor and adversary tracking type of world. Today, modern threat intelligence tends to be a bit of cyber threat intelligence with indicators and context and so forth. You know, you think of threat intelligence, it really kind of comes down to indicators of compromise, tracking adversaries that are relevant to your organization, and any sort of context around that. And how does it differ for most folks when it comes to actually consuming you know, actionable threat intelligence versus plain old feeds? Yeah, absolutely. Feeds tend to lack a lot of the context that would be considered true threat intelligence. For example, if I just give you a feed of bad file hashes or bad domains, that doesn't give you or the consumer any context to why it's bad. Should I be concerned? Maybe the confidence or severity of that. Threat intelligence is really that context and knowledge that sits on top of it all. Comparison would be feeds up against a finished intelligence report with all the context, including it was coming from this actor, it's relevant to these organizations, and maybe even this is how you would respond to it. So feeds are kind of what was like an early concept of threat intelligence and still today is almost an immature view at threat intelligence. Nowadays, we want to look at you know finished intelligence in some fashion with all that context on top of it. Now, in terms of organizations engaging with this and making sure that the investments they're making in it are providing a good return, what advice do you have there? Yeah, you know, really kind of comes down to initially 
when you build the program around intaking or in some cases producing threat intelligence, you have to really know why and where to consume and how to benefit from it most. So if your provider of threat intelligence is supplying information that you are not able to even consume yet as a security program internally, you're not going to get the value that you're, you know, you're paying for. So you need to prepare to understand exactly how to benefit from it most. And that includes things like confirming intake capability, you know, such as integrating with your other security platforms inside your organization. And then the ability to even respond to threat intelligence actions placed inside your network. You know, if you trigger one of those bad domains from some APT group out there inside your network, do you have the skill sets, the processes, or even the technical capability to respond to that? So you need to kind of get some foothold before that you start to intake threat intelligence. And there's a lot of stuff that you should be trying to knock out before you start taking in and focusing on threat intelligence on these advanced actor groups or anything like that. You know, we should try and focus on first knocking out some of the almost baselines of information security programs that are kind of standard nowadays, such as antivirus or access control basics and things like that before you really start to take into account threat intelligence benefits. Yeah, it seems to me like there's a potential there for folks to become overwhelmed by the information that comes at them. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of those key pieces that really is necessary for that planning process is determining what's relevant and, you know, focus on the highest value pieces of threat intelligence, something that has the most likelihood to occur and has the greatest potential impact against your organization. You know, you don't really want to try and intake every piece of threat intelligence out in the world just to get started. Perhaps it's a good time to first focus on things that are relevant to your industry or maybe your location in the world or the type of business you do with certain customers. Um, That'll help focus you on certain threat adversaries that, you know, may be most likely to go after your organization. So, you know, in that case, you're producing the most value right from the start without having to distract and take away too many resources uh, from your program. That's Tom Hagel from AT&T Alien Labs. The Guardian reports that Apple contractors regularly hear stuff people would rather keep private. The report lists medical discussions, drug deals, and conversations, and other sounds of shared intimacy. As figuring in the material, those human contract trainers, human helpers as Apple calls them, used to improve series performance. 9 to 5 Mac reports Apple's response. Cupertino explains that such material, quote, is used to help Siri and dictation understand you better and recognize what you say. The International Business Times says that Apple intends to take its case to the public through a PR campaign. And finally, it's altcoin, so no income tax, right? Has that occurred to you? Probably not, because you're conscientious, prudent, and law-abiding, always erring on the side of good citizenship, But we're pretty sure that thought has crossed more than a few minds. Among the minds are those over at the United States Internal Revenue Service. The IRS is reminding cryptocurrency users that, yes, money they earn in the form of altcoin is indeed subject to taxation, just like regular coin. The IRS has sent out about 10,000 letters to people whose responsibility to alt-render onto Uncle Sam may have slipped their minds, CNBC reports. 
We expect the next wave of scam phone calls to be from the IRS police telling us that our social security has been compromised and offering us the chance to make the IRS whole with a credit card payment over the phone. That will be hooey and malarkey, something you say to fetch them in Arkansas. But the taxability of cryptocurrency gains is very real. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. It's good to be back, Dave. Uh, article over on ZDNet. This is uh, written by Caitlin Simpanyu uh, for Zero Day, and the title is U.S. Companies Selling Weaponized Blue Keep Exploit. Describe to us what's going on here. So last time we talked, uh, we were talking about there. there's a proof-of-concept exploit out there that wasn't actually uh, a real exploit. Mm-hmm. It's just a demonstration of the vulnerability. Uh, since then, a couple things have happened. One, there's been a slide deck released about how you could exploit blue keep in the wild right and and additionally just like you said earlier immunity is now selling an exploit this is a penetration testing kit that contractors will use to test somebody's uh, network and to find the vulnerabilities in it and so by having this functional exploit in their database that allows them to do a better job of that right right it is only a matter of time, and when I say a matter of time, I'm, I mean weeks before this is available in the Metasploit framework for anybody to download. Hmm. It's going to be out there. So we've talked about this before, about how important patching is on these systems that are vulnerable to it. Microsoft has come out and actually released a patch for this, even going back to XP, which is an unsupported operating system anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, the NSA has come out and said that patching this vulnerability is critical. You mm-hmm. have to do it. it because these things are going to start getting exploited. And the folks at Immunity have said that uh, their version of this tool is not self-propagating. It's not a worm. Right. I don't fault Immunity for coming out with this uh, with this exploit. Your customer base are people that have very specific instructions from companies on what they can and cannot attack. I guess I can't help wondering, uh, you know, we've seen that folks are out there scanning the Internet to look for systems that are likely vulnerable right. to Blue Keep. Right, they've, they've so, been scanning coming out of Tor nodes. Right, so why not just do that? Why not just scan your customers? In other words, I'm the pen tester. Why not just scan for the vulnerability rather than having the actual 
active exploit? What, what is that? Is that just another level of verification? Well, in the course of a penetration test, you're trying to get network access and you might be looking for places and ways that you can elevate your privileges, right? Right. If as a penetration tester, I can't find any way to, into your network, or actually I'm going to use all the tools at my disposal. And if this gets me into your network and lets me pivot around and move then I'm going to use it because mm. that's what attackers are going to do. I see. So as a penetration tester, this may be uh, the first step or one of many steps along the right. way in the course of my testing all sorts of things within your network. Correct. Right. Correct. So merely a scan of whether you might be vulnerable to this, that's only part of the job you've given me as a penetration tester. Yes. All right. So as things stand now, what are the mitigation options? The best thing to do is to patch the vulnerability. Right. Right. It, and Microsoft has had a patch out there since May 14th. Now, that is not always possible. Mm -hmm. And I was talking uh, just, I think, yesterday about, about this case, this use case. Uh, for example, if a hospital goes out and they buy a $10 million MRI machine, mm -hmm. right, and that MRI machine is controlled by a Windows XP computer because they bought it 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, the vendor may have said to them, do not update this machine because mm -hmm. if you update this machine, that's an unsupported change. Mm -hmm. Okay, You may not actually be able to update a machine that's vulnerable to BlueKeep, but there are other mitigations you can do. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is if you can enable network-level authentication for remote desktop protocol, that eliminates the vulnerability. Uh, you can also just disable remote desktop protocol mm. and say we're not going to be able to remote desktop into these machines. We're just actually going to have to go down there and connect to them physically. Right. Or you can make it so you can't RDP into these machines unless you're coming in from the network or through a VPN. Just, in other words, keep RDP off the Internet. Mm. It's generally a bad idea. I think I'm, then I think that having RDP on the Internet is just generally a bad idea. The only way you should be letting people – remotely RDP into your system as if they come in through a VPN. I see. All right. So uh, we keep uh, beating this drum. This is a serious one. Uh, do what you can and do right. not hesitate. Uh, do not pass go. I'm going to make a prediction, Dave. Yeah. In the next month or two, we're going to see a huge in infestation of a worm that uses this vulnerability to propagate around the Internet. Mm. Now, that's the easiest part of my job is making these kind of predictions, Dave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, very good. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. 
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Thank you.